Let me pray again here just briefly as we get started. Father, your word is truth, and it's the truth of your word that enlightens our minds, that shows us how things really are, not necessarily the way we perceive them. And Lord, we need your truth. We need your spirit to take your word and to cleanse our minds, to instruct our minds, to show us more of yourself and more of your goodwill in our lives, what you want us to be about as your representatives on the earth and what you want from us and in us as your children. And so as we look in the pages of your book this morning, honor yourself, Lord, and show us more of yourself and the truth and let our lives be conformed to that in Jesus' name. Well, it's the middle of summer. We've passed the summer solstice. Plenty of seats, guys, all over. Come on up. Uh, We've passed the summer solstice, the longest day of light in the year, and we are approaching the 4th of July and the birthday of our nation. You know, the colonists, a little bit of history there. You remember they were freeing themselves from the despotic, irrational, and in fact illegal rule of King George III. And so we got rid of that form of government and started a new nation on the earth. And, and as those in the states who historically came from the rule of a king, and we enjoy our form of government, this democratic republic that's really served us quite well for two and a half centuries, it's hard to imagine any other form of government being better than what we have, isn't it? I mean, we want to export democracy or republican form of government because we've seen its strengths, and that's all a good thing. And you know, one of the reasons why our form of government works so well is because the genius of the organizers of the Constitution and of our country recognize that man is innately sinful, that man is inherently deficient. And in the words of Lord Acton, A hundred years after our nation was formed, he famously wrote this, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men, he wrote. And it was with that in mind that the framers of our government and constitution split up the powers, unlike England, not a king, but split up the power so no one had too much power under one hat, under one area of control. And that was the genius. And the the federal government positioned against the state government and those interests. And that was the genius of the Constitution, our form of government. Uh, But actually, if you think about it, if you wanted to establish a kingdom in which the best things happened as efficiently as possible, it wouldn't be a democracy and it wouldn't be a republic. Uh, It would be a dictatorship. Does this make sense? If you set up the most efficient form of government, it would not be an elected government. It would be a dictator. Because if you think about it, a dictator has the power necessary to enforce his will efficiently. You don't have to mitigate uh, contrary interests from one special interest group and another. A dictator would be an efficient form of governance. Of course, the trouble, as Lord Acton knew, is We're sinful and we're deficient, so you put all that power under one hat and you get trouble, as we had under King George III. But what if, what if there was a king or a dictator who was absolutely benevolent and absolutely wise and absolutely had the interests of his subjects at heart and in mind in everything he did, If you could find that kind of a person and he were the king, you'd have the best of all worlds, wouldn't you? An efficient form of governance ruled by someone who is benevolent and would enact just legislation, who would be a blessing, not like King George, but who would actually be a blessing to those he ruled over. When you look through the pages of the Bible, you'll see that ultimately... God is committed to the kingdom form of governance. God is not ultimately committed to democracies and republics. In the future, we'll look back and see them all end. God is committed to a kingdom and to a king, and not just to any king. In Daniel 7 
And Daniel's a great book in the Old Testament. It probably gets short shrift, but it's filled with imagery. It's a very exciting book. In Daniel 7, the prophet Daniel, who's an exile, he's a Jewish exile in Babylon, Daniel tells us that one night he had these dreams and these visions. And he sees the nations are like this swirling ocean, like like the waves of an ocean in turmoil. And out of this disruptive atmosphere, the waves going back and forth, he sees these creatures emerge out of the waves and the seas. And they're animals, and they're crazy forms of animals. And one follows another. And each one of these animals represents a kingdom. And four of them come out. The Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, the Greek, and the Roman. In biblical history, those are the four main kingdoms. And they're depicted as animals. Well, after these four have come up, Daniel keeps seeing, he says at verse 13 and 14 in Daniel 7, He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He came to the ancient of days. You notice the one that comes. He's not an animal. He's a son of man. He looks human. He comes up to God himself, the ancient of days. And to him, to the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Daniel 7 is looking at the end of the kingdoms of this world. And they are put away. You'll see similar imagery throughout the book of Daniel. But all these former kingdoms, they're wiped out and they're displaced by the kingdom that God Himself sets up. In another portion of Daniel... It's as if a stone comes and it crushes everything that went before it. In God's economy, God is committed to a kingdom and all the nations of the world will end in the kingdom of God. That is where God is heading. It's to this theme of God's form of government that we're turning this morning in the Lord's model prayer. If you were here for week one, you remember that When Jesus told his disciples how to pray, gave them a model for prayer, he said, start by having a mindset in which you're either praying with others or you're praying for others. Remember, they were plural pronouns. Our Father, our daily bread, us, all plural pronouns. That we approached God with others in prayer or we approached God for others in prayer. And we approach God as our Father. We have this unique privilege as His children to approach Him boldly. That was week one. And week two, we saw, well, but also, God's just not our familial parent, but He's also the high, lofty, holy, separate God who resides in heaven. And Jesus' first petition in His model prayer was that God Himself would be known and treated as holy. This morning, we'll go to the second and third of Jesus' six petitions having to do with, excuse me, with God and God's things. If you have your Bible, I'm going to read from the ESV here or your study sheet. It's on there as well. I'll read the prayer, the model prayer here, Matthew 6, 9 through 13 in the ESV, and then we'll look at verse 10 only. Jesus said, Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed or holy be your name, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That first phrase is where we'll spend most of our time this morning. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. I'll bet most of us here have said or read the Lord's model prayer many, many times. But I'll bet if you asked a variety of us, what do we mean when we say your kingdom comes? I'll bet it wouldn't be at all the same thing. When you pray or when you hear the words, your kingdom come, what's in your mind? What do we see? What are we thinking about specifically? Specifically, what are we thinking about when we pray your kingdom come? Jesus says, that's what we're to pray. God's kingdom come. What is that? What does that look like? 
And if we're being specific in prayer, what do we mean, in fact, when we pray for God's kingdom to come? For instance, I could say, Lord, your kingdom come in the hearts of people, in my heart or in the hearts of other people, right? Your kingdom come in people's hearts. Or we could pray, God, manifest more of your kingdom in the church, your representatives on the earth. Lord, bring your kingdom, more of your kingdom, in or through the church. Or maybe if we're thinking more prophetically, we might mean, Lord, bring your kingdom by the return of King Jesus to the earth, the second coming of Christ. Or maybe lastly, in my list, maybe we're thinking, Lord, bring in your eternal kingdom, that when time is no more and when you've brought in the new heavens and new earth and all things are all that they should be and nothing that they shouldn't be, your eternal kingdom. So when we pray your kingdom come, which is it? We could pray for all of those, couldn't we? All four of those and and should in different settings. If we only prayed, though, for the first two, kingdom in the hearts, kingdom in the church, our prayers would probably be a little short of what God is after because he's, he's after a lot more than that. But we could pray for any or all four of those, and we'll look at these very briefly. If we pray for your kingdom to come in hearts, we're really praying that God's rule, God's role as ruler would be realized within an individual, inside us, and inside other people, in our motives and our thoughts. So if you go back in Matthew 5 earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, at verse 3, Jesus said there, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God in the heart of an individual is characterized by humility, by this sense of spiritual poverty before a holy God. And when I realize my poverty before God, my lack, my inadequacy, that humility is one of the key elements of the kingdom of God within me, in my heart, in my mind, in my emotions and my thoughts. When we pray for the kingdom within hearts, one of the things we're praying about is just humility and a right apprehension of who we are and what we're like and who God is and what He's like. So praying for the kingdom in hearts is praying for humility in a sense, a real sense of our spiritual poverty before a holy God. If you go later in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 13 at verse 9, Jesus talks about the Word of God the gospel, the message about God's deliverance in Christ going out. And he says there, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and he doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in the heart. That the gospel is the word of God's kingdom that he means to plant inside an individual's heart. So that when we share the gospel and someone believes that, They've received the kingdom of God, the word of the gospel, in their heart. Or the flip side, when you and I share the gospel and someone hears it and they're considering it. But Jesus says the enemy, Satan, takes that away. He's, pre- he's prevented the word of God from entering their heart and bringing that transforming work of God in them. So the kingdom of God in hearts is praying that people will believe the gospel, that they will individually receive God's kingdom through repentance and faith in Christ. Repentance from my life and rebellion against God. Acceptance of the free gift of salvation offered me in Christ. That's God's kingdom in hearts. Uh, Romans 14, 7, last one in this category. Uh, Paul there talking about food and days, just numbers of things the early church was trying to figure out says there, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. It's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Paul says it's not so much about the externals, about what we're eating, which day we celebrate, what all that looks like. He says, really, the kingdom of God now is about righteousness. It's about inner transformation. It's about peace and joy. So if I'm praying your kingdom come, and I'm thinking about in the hearts of individuals, I'm really asking God, Lord, would you give us humility, the right apprehension of who we are and what you're like inside? Lord, would you make sure that people are not only hearing the word about your son Jesus, 
but they're embracing it. It's taking root in their heart. And Lord, would you bring your kingdom by the inner transformation in those who have trusted you, righteousness, peace, and joy. That's the kingdom of God at work in our hearts. So your kingdom come in our hearts. That's a legitimate way to pray, and we should. That's one form of the kingdom. Another form is your kingdom come in the church. By the way, this whole notion of the kingdom of God is a sphere of uh, academic inquiry so vast and so broad that what we talk about this morning is just, it's a tiny, tiny drop. And you know, the truth is, if you, if you teach on two words, people say, how can you teach on two words? You know, our Father. And you say, you know what? An hour is not long enough. Our Father. Well, that's the same with this. This whole notion of the kingdom of God, what is that? What does that look like? It's vast. It's huge. We're scratching the surface, and I'm giving you my version of that also. So you could say a whole lot more than we'll cover this morning. But your kingdom come in the church. The church today, the church of Jesus Christ, is the kingdom of God on earth. It's not the full-blown version of the kingdom, but it's an aspect of the kingdom of God right now today on the earth. Paul says in Colossians 1.13, when he speaks of someone coming to Christ and being saved, he says, God has delivered us from the domain or the kingdom of darkness. God has delivered us from one kingdom, the kingdom of darkness. He has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. In the process of salvation, we are, in fact, Paul says, We are transferring citizenship from Satan's kingdom of darkness into Jesus' kingdom, into God's kingdom. To be a Christian today, to belong to the body of Christ, is to be, by definition, in God's kingdom. Inclusion in the body, being a Christian, is to be in God's kingdom. John says in Revelation 1.9, he says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom. John there says we not only share trouble as fellow Christians, but we are fellow members in the kingdom of God. In His day, in this age of the church, the church is God's kingdom. Now again, it's not all there is to the kingdom. And in fact, arguably, it's the hidden kingdom. The the church does not rule over the world quite obviously today. Jesus is not ruling. But within the church, the church is the sphere of Jesus' rule. So to pray for God's kingdom in the church is to pray that Jesus' will for us as His followers is fulfilled totally. The church should demonstrate what the kingdom of God will look like in the future, at least in the loyalty and the obedience of those in the kingdom. So to pray your kingdom come in the church should be a church that's worshiping God. That's our first call to recognize who He is and to worship. But it's to declare the truth. It's to share the Gospel. It's to bring our own lives in line with God's commission and will for each one of us. So your kingdom come in the church is that the church of Jesus Christ would be the glorious spotless bride that is God's will for us. So if we pray your kingdom come, Lord, may You make Your rule in the church full. May we be glorious as your representatives. May we embrace your role and your rule for us. Your kingdom come in the church. Uh, Your kingdom come on the earth. Uh, This is part of uh, the kingdom of God in study. Uh, There's a lot of variation of themes on what people think this will look like in the future. Uh, The Jewish nation knew that God had promised that there would one day be a kingdom with a king centered in Jerusalem, on the throne of David, ruling over the earth. And they lived with that expectation. And that is one of the facets of why Jesus was rejected in his first coming in the incarnation. He did not look like the Messiah Israel was expecting. There's much more to it than that. But he didn't look like the one that would fill the role of the delivering messianic king in that first coming. But God had made a promise to David. King David, you remember the guy that everybody else is measured against? David had it in his heart. He wanted to build God a house. He says, God, I live in a nice house, and you're you're in a tent. I'd like to do something for you. I'd like to build you a house, a temple. 
And God says, well, David, this is a nice idea. Thank you very much. I'll have your son build a little house for me, a token house. But this is what I'm going to do for you instead. When your days are fulfilled, 2 Samuel 7, 12 and 13, and you lie down with your fathers, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, your physical descendant, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. We know this isn't Solomon because Solomon's kingdom fell. One of David's physical descendants, God promised, is going to set up a kingdom that lasts forever. And by the way, this is why genealogies are really important. When you take the time to read through the genealogies in Matthew and Luke's gospel, and you say, really, do I have to read all this? The point is, we know that Jesus, whether you look at Mary's side or Joseph's side, we know who he comes from. He's the seed of David. Through Solomon and through Nathan, through two of David's sons, Jesus has his patronage from David, both sides. There's no doubt that Jesus is a physical descendant of King David. No doubt whatsoever. If you go to the Prince of the Prophets in the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah, 66 chapters long, long book, and the themes are sort of scattered. But if you have a concept of what God's future reign on the earth looks like, it's probably from the book of Isaiah. There's more there than in any other portion of the Bible to describe what might that look like. So, for instance, Jerusalem being the center of the earth, being raised up to a position of glory among all the nations, that's Isaiah. And the nations being blessed as they honor God's rule and honor His people Israel, that's Isaiah. And when you think of people living lives as long as oak trees, where if you die at 100 years old, you're assumed to be cursed because you're cut off in your infancy, that's Isaiah. If you think about spears being turned into pruning hooks, that's Isaiah. Children can play near a serpent's den with no fear of being hurt, Isaiah. Uh, lambs lying down with wolves without any thought of harm. That's Isaiah. We've got these glorious pictures, photos, if you will, of what King Jesus' rule and reign on the earth will look like in the future. In Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, this is a passage that's usually reserved for Christmas season, but this talks about the implementation of the rule of God on earth. For to us, Isaiah wrote, a child is born, to us a son is given. That's the incarnation, isn't it? That's the first coming of Jesus. We read this at the Christmas season. But listen to what he continues saying. The government shall be upon his shoulder. He will uphold the government in himself. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. This is no mere mortal. One of the titles for this descendant of David is Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of His government and of peace there will be no end. This is a kingdom that lasts forever. On the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice, righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. See, God has a kingdom that He's going to bring about on earth. I've got references here on your study sheet, which I won't take the time to go into this morning. Zechariah 14 is one of the most thrilling passages in all of the Bible. It's echoed in Acts 1.11. Zechariah 14 tells us that when Jesus comes back to the earth in the second coming, He's coming to the Mount of Olives. His feet, Zechariah tells, will touch the Mount of Olives when Jerusalem is surrounded by the armies of the world. Acts 1.11, the angels tell the disciples as they see Jesus zoom up, teleport into a cloud in heaven, taken away from them. They say, don't worry, he's going to come again in just the way you saw him, physically, personally, to the Mount of Olives. If you look in Luke 21, Jesus is describing, just like in Matthew 24, the scene that would be going on before his second coming. There's wars, there's rumors of wars, love has grown cold, nation is fighting against nation, men are fainting from fear, this all precedes His second coming, His return to the earth. When we pray, Your kingdom come, if we pray short of the return of Jesus, we're falling short of where God is heading with this prayer. 
God intends to establish His rule and reign on the earth. And guys, whatever your theology, no one and nothing can bring this about except the Lord Jesus Himself. The theology is all over the map on what God's kingdom on earth looks like. And many hold theology that says the kingdom of God will occur on the earth without the king. I believe it's ludicrous. The world won't get better and better. It will get worse and worse, Jesus says, before his coming. So when we pray, your kingdom come, we should also be thinking, God, we can't wait for the day that King Jesus returns from heaven to earth and establishes his rule. It's the best thing that can happen to the earth. It's the best thing that can happen to us. To participate in God's kingdom fully will be to participate with King Jesus in His physical rule over this earth. Your kingdom come. Lord Jesus, we're ready. Come on back. Set it up. Your kingdom come. At the last there, your kingdom come forever. Revelation, again, many interpretations of where Revelation takes us or teaches us, what's literal, what's figurative, what's metaphor, what's analogy. I read it as more literal uh, than metaphor, certainly. But Revelation describes a scene in which, though King Jesus sets up his kingdom on the earth, God actually gives man another opportunity to sort of reflect his heart, and man rebels against the rule of King Jesus on the earth. And then God puts down all rebellion and he institutes a new heaven and a new earth. Jesus' eternal kingdom starts with his coming to the earth, but it doesn't end there because we know it's very clear from the scriptures, Isaiah and 2 Peter, that this earth will wear out, be rolled up like a garment. Peter says it will be burned up with fire and God will start over with a new heaven and a new earth. But Jesus' rule on the earth starts his eternal kingdom. So 1 Corinthians 15, 24, Paul's been talking about the resurrection and what are the future events? What do we look forward to? What does that look like? And he says, then comes the end when he, that would be Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. You see, King Jesus puts down all opposition. And then as the king who's wiped out all opposition, he takes his kingdom and he submits it to God the Father, the high king. That's God's eternal kingdom. Daniel 7.14, that passage we started with, tells us again it's a kingdom that will never be destroyed, never end, last forever. And Revelation 11.15, last in this sphere, uh, it's a great verse. Uh, The seventh angel blew his trumpet, these declarations of God in the midst of all this trial and turmoil. And it says there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ and He shall reign forever. That's the initiation of the eternal kingdom of God. The fulfillment of the eternal kingdom of God. You know, it's interesting that the very first kingdom recorded in the Scriptures is Genesis 10.10. And it's Nimrod. And the beginning of his kingdom was at Babel or Babylon. And throughout the Scriptures, you see that Babylon is the epitome of earth's rebellion against the reign of heaven. The first kingdom was man's effort at establishing man's rule separate from God and the kingdom of God. But the last kingdom, it wipes out everything before it, everything that preceded it, God's eternal kingdom. So, when we pray, your kingdom come, we might mean, Lord, would you bring more of your kingdom inside us, in our hearts, in the transformation within? Lord, would you increase the scope of your kingdom through the salvation of folks who hear about your Son and embrace the gospel, take it in, and become your children? But we should certainly also mean, Lord Jesus, would you speed your coming, your return to the earth. Lord, we can't wait for you to make all things such that they fully honor you and represent you and your goodwill. So your kingdom come could mean a number of things. We certainly want to include Jesus' future return and the setting up of God's eternal consummate kingdom. 
Somewhat parallel to that is the follow-up phrases, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. These are the third petitions having to do with God and God's things. And there are really two thoughts here. It's God's will, and it's God's will that we're asking be done. We're talking about God's will. Now, if any of us has said a canned prayer, it's probably this one, our Father who art in heaven. You know, if any of us grew up and we memorized a prayer, it's probably this one, which makes me really, really uncomfortable because of these phrases. You remember back when we did the study on the ten words and we looked at the third word, don't attach God's name to vanity. Don't use God's way in a a way He doesn't want it to be used. Don't attach it to something less than God or than is worthy of God. So let me ask you this. When we pray, your will be done, do we mean it? Now think about, I'm I'm really serious on this. When we pray, God, your will be done, do we mean it? Because I think more often than not, we don't. And because we don't, we're taking God's name in vain. Now just think about this. We're praying in Jesus' model, Father, your will, that would mean not mine, and not yours, not ours. That would mean, Lord, your will be done, as opposed to mine or anyone else's. Your will be done. So when we pray, Lord, your will be done, is that really what we mean? So you know, the epitome of this is Jesus himself. Jesus gave us the model prayer, and then he lived it out. So when you look in Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, at verses 41 and 42... This is the night of Jesus' rejection, His betrayal. And you remember after the Last Supper, He goes up to the hill, goes into the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, He knows what's coming the next day, doesn't He? He signed up for this. So He knows the next day He will be tried. He will be rejected and found guilty. He knows He'll be brutalized by the Romans. He knows He'll be crucified. And worse than all the physical agony he knows is coming in the next 24 hours, he knows that God the Father is going to cut off his fellowship with him. So he knows within the next day when he hangs suspended between heaven and earth, the Father that he's always had the most intimate of relationships with is going to be cut off, is going to turn his back on him and will not be in fellowship with him. Because on the cross, Jesus takes our sin. He becomes sin for us. And that's why he cries from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Father forsook the Son on the cross. Jesus knows this is coming. And it's the spiritual separation, much, much more than the physical that we think of, that was the deal for Jesus. So he goes to the garden and he's praying and he knows what's coming. And so he's human as well as divine, fully human fully divine. So he prays, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. See, as a man on earth, he says, Dad, Father, this is not what I want. This is not what I would choose. If there's any way that you could do something else, would you do that? But then he concludes, not my will, but yours be done. Now, that's the acid test. Do we mean what we say? Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done. Jesus meant it. He gave us the model and he lived it out. Not my will, Lord, yours be done. He said yes to the grueling suffering and spiritual separation from God his Father. Not my will, yours be done. So I'm, in my own mind, I'm thinking, Lord, when I pray, your will be done, Is that really what I'm saying? Because you see what this requires. If you and I pray this honestly with integrity, it means we're saying to God, God, I'm yours. All my hopes, all my dreams, all my desires, anything on my own that I want, I lay at your feet as expendable. And I'm not asking you for anything specific to myself right now. I'm saying... Your will be done, whatever it is, whatever the cost, 
whatever that looks like. See, I'm just not sure we're there. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. I'm not sure we're there. So I'm trembling a little bit when I'm thinking of this phrase with our prayers. Your will be done means we're willing to submit everything to Jesus and say, whatever you decide, we're good with. Whatever you say no to, I'm good with. This is an acid test for following Jesus in this model prayer. We need to be very, very careful. Let me hurry up a little bit through, uh, winding down towards the end. On earth as it is in heaven. Remember in heaven, the heavenly scene, it's all glorious and everyone sees God as He is and they, they say the truth and they fall down and they worship Him. You know that in heaven, God's will is done absolutely, fully, immediately. And when Jesus says we should pray that God's will is done on the same way on the earth that, is it, that it is in heaven, we're saying, Lord, we want you to be obeyed fully right now all the way. That's our prayer. Might you be honored and obeyed right now fully, immediately. Because that's the way you're obeyed in heaven. Now, one of the passages in the Old Testament that speaks to me most fully about this is one that most parents know well. It's 1 Samuel 15. Very briefly there, Israel's first king, King Saul, had been commissioned by God to go wipe out Agag and the Amalekites. God said, you're to destroy everyone and everything. King Saul goes out. And he destroys some and some, but not all. And he's walking back with all this stuff, animals and people. Samuel approaches him, and King Saul says, hey, we did it. We did what God told me to do. And Samuel says, well, what do you mean you did it? What's, what's the noise? Who are these people? And what about, what's with all these animals? Well, Saul says, well, we had a bright idea. You see, we decided we'd save the best, and then we'd offer it to God as a sacrifice. So God's command, destroy everyone and everything. Saul says, you know what? I've got a better idea, Lord. I'm going to honor you by partial obedience. I'll destroy some, not all. I'll bring the rest, and I'll offer it up to you. And Samuel says, not a good idea. And the famous verse, has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. To obey is better than sacrifice. And to listen, or to listen and obey, is better than the fat of rams. God says through Samuel, I don't want your version of sacrifice. I want my version of obedience. It's full, it's complete, it's immediate. As parents going through a parenting class, I know some of you have heard the phrase, first-time obedience. That's God's call, not just for children. It's His call for us. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That means full and complete obedience. And that starts with us. You know, if you're a husband, God has this really amazing command on you to love your wife sacrificially, to be willing to lay your life down for your wife. Is that the way you're loving your wife? Because that's the call. So if you're not, that's disobedience. That's the call. Am I kidding myself about what I'm doing here? Your will be done, Lord. Oh yeah, let them obey you on earth as you're obeyed in heaven. But I'll be my kind of husband. No. Or how about if you're a wife? Be submissive and supportive and your husband's help. What does that look like? Is that where you're really at? Is that where we're really at? Because if it's not, you can see where this goes if we follow Jesus' model prayer. But we're living life like Saul. It's hypocrisy. Better not to pray. In the Old Testament, God says, better not to vow. Don't tell God you'll do something and not do it. Better not to pray than to pray this and then live life on our terms. That's Saul. God says, I don't want it. Not after. Kids, there are a lot of kids in here. You know, God's first call on you is to obey your parents. Not sometimes. All the time. Unless your parents tell you to do something in direct violation of God's will, you're supposed to obey them. That's a big deal. You know, and the list goes on and on. But are we giving lip service to the model prayer? Are we actually doing it? Are we following through? The implications, point three on your study sheet there, you and I do not bring about the kingdom of God. We have a limited role in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God's in our hearts. It's in the church. Those are our spheres of influence. 
But we can't bring in the fullness of the kingdom of God by what we do. But we are the kingdom's representatives on earth. So we are, as it were, God's beachhead on the earth. We are his advance party on the earth. Paul says this in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the second coming. Paul says our real citizenship is as Jesus, King Jesus' citizens. He rules now in heaven. We're His citizens. But we're living on earth. We're His beachhead, as it were. We are His advance party on the earth. And then later, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are ambassadors for Christ, making God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. See, in the language of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, we're representatives, citizens of heaven, ambassadors for heaven, here on assignment for God. We're on assignment from God, from heaven, bringing a little bit of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven with us. We are on the king's business. We are the king's citizens representing him and his interests in our spheres of influence. So the aroma of heaven, the appeal of heaven, should come with us. Let me say briefly, uh, we're in a political season. Presidential races in, in place, uh, primary races. There are uh, votes around the country for marriage amendments, one thing and another. I was reading online this morning about some of this again. Uh, Christians are split on what our involvement in the political and social arena looks like. And we have the privilege as the citizens of heaven and as heaven's ambassadors to also be a participant in the role of society, culture, and politics right here and right now. I believe Christians should be voting. I believe Christians should be investigating candidates and should be actively voting and supporting for candidates who most closely represent the interests of heaven, God's will expressed in the Scriptures. We should be doing this. We should be taking public stands on marriage amendments because these things reflect God's will. So we should be active in the kingdoms of men right now as citizens of heaven, fully and devotedly, energetically, with our mouths and with our finances. However, having said that, the flip side is we don't bring in the kingdom. Only Jesus does. When we are part of the political and the societal process, legislation and candidates, guys, we're being salt and light in one of the ways we can be. We're being salt and light. We're loving our neighbor as ourselves by trying to see the policies that most reflect God's benevolent will for us at play in the world around us. So we should be involved. We just can't come to the conclusion in our own minds that the political involvement will bring in the kingdom. It won't. But it will be salt and it will be light. And we will be, as far as we're able, we will be affecting culture and society in the best ways we can as far as the political arena goes. So it does not bring in the kingdom. Only the king brings in the kingdom. But we're supposed to have the king's effect in our spheres of influence. And so the political is one of those. We can make a mistake on either side here. We say, we're not going to be involved. That's not the gospel. Or we could say, politics is everything. That we can rule the world through political action. Well, they're both false. But we can have a role, and we should have a role, where we have the privilege of participating in this democratic republic as Christians, as representatives of heaven. We should be involved in this because there is limited value. There is limited value there. We should be participating there. And God's will done on earth. Sorry as I wind down here. How do you know God's will? We're praying for God's will to be done on earth. How do you know God's will? How, how can we pray and form for God's will? Do you hear my drum beating slowly in the background here? Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, we know God's will because we read the Bible. 
We read the Word. We meditate on the Scriptures. We memorize the Scriptures. We talk to each other about the Scriptures. Guys, if we're not in the Bible, we don't know God's will. That's where it's expressed. You don't know it if you don't read it. We're not much of representatives of the citizens of heaven if we don't know what the king's about. What's his business? What's our mission? It's in the Scriptures. We're giving, again, lip service to your will be done on earth as it is in heaven if we don't know what the Bible says. We don't know God's will. We've got to be in the book. 2 Timothy 3.16, great memory verse you're all aware of. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable. Your, your study sheet there has 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Thessalonians 5 as references of God's will. Those verses say specifically, this is God's will for you. It's in the book. It's there. You know, your sanctification, a sexual purity. This is God's will for you. Give thanks in all things. It says... Right there. This is God's will. How do I know God's will? I'm in the book. It's His manual to us. If we're in His army, if we're members of His kingdom, this is our operating instructions. This is how we know what we're supposed to be about. We're reading the owner's manual. It's our field guide. It's the operating instructions. It's also, within the pages of that book, it's the coming king's offer of unconditional pardon for the rebellion of earth against heaven and the offer of free gift of eternal life in His kingdom forever and ever. That's what we're offering. The citizens of the earth living in the domain of darkness under Satan their ruler in opposition, fists in the sky, against the rule of heaven itself. We're offering, as the king's representatives, unconditional pardon as we share the gospel with the folks around us. But it's all in the book. Let me close with this from Wikipedia, thinking about our nation's birthday, the kingdom of God, and the nation we're blessed to live in. Uh, About the uh, Declaration of Independence, Wikipedia writes this, During the American Revolution, the legal separation of the 13 colonies from Great Britain occurred on July 2nd, 1776, when the Second Continental Congress voted to approve a resolution of independence. Congress debated and revised the Declaration of Independence, finally approving it on July 4th. A day later, John Adams had written to his wife, Abigail, this. The second day of July, we do the fourth, sorry, John, second day of July, 1776, will be the most memorable epic in the history of America. I am apt to believe that it will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival. That was spot on. It ought to be commemorated as the day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. They still did this back in the day. It ought to be solemnized with pomp and parade with shows, games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires, and illuminations from one end of this continent to the other from this time forward forevermore. Now, the forevermore is a stretch, isn't it? Uh, But he was spot on here, wasn't he? If you think of the history of our nation, guys, I don't care if you're talking about Greece or Rome or Babylon or Media Persia or Egypt or Assyria, There's been no nation in the history of the world that's been more blessed than the United States of America. You know, we sing God shed His grace on thee. He has abundantly, miraculously, providentially, inarguably. This has been a blessing to the nations of the world, these United States of America. And we're certainly not where we should be today. But God has poured out His grace on this country, and on us as citizens within the United States. So Adams, in his day, and looking down, says, guys, we ought to be celebrating this forever. Now I just ask you, if John Adams was this enthusiastic about the formation of a nation on the earth that like all nations before or after would end... What should our attitude be towards the kingdom of God coming on the earth in its fulfillment? 
to the kingdom of God being initiated by King Jesus' return to the earth to set up his eternal kingdom. If Adams was this fired up about what became the United States of America, what should our attitude be towards Jesus' model prayer when he says, pray this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We should be fired up about this. And on the 4th of July, in just a couple of weeks, when we're celebrating the birth, a miraculous birth, a providential birth of this nation on the earth, guys, just take a moment and think, God, your kingdom come. Thank you for all you've done for us here. But Lord, we know it's not the end of your program. Lord Jesus, come. You know how some of the last phrases in the book of Revelation, Jesus says, Revelation twenty-two twelve. 12, hey, I'm coming soon. And then that wasn't enough, so he says later, verse 20, hey, really? I'm coming soon. And John says, and we should say, yes, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That's praying, your kingdom come. Father in heaven, thank you that your plans for this nation and for the earth are to be gloriously consumed, as it were, in the kingdom of your beloved Son. And Father God, would you open our eyes? Would you enlighten us by the truth of your word to show us how to fully be implemented as citizens of heaven, living in this democratic republic today? Lord God, would you open our eyes to see how you want us to participate as ambassadors for Christ, sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus with those around us. And Lord, praying for the consummation of all things in the kingdom of your beloved Son. Lord God, we give you great thanks and praise for all the ways you've blessed us on this earth, in this nation. And yet, Lord, with John and with the early church, we say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.